This I recall to mind and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we open God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word. A few moments of silent prayer if necessary in order to uh, utilize the grace recovery procedure to confess our sins privately to the Lord to recover fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have to gather together as a body of believers to study your word, for the clarity of your word, for the integrity of it, for how all of the parts fit together and illuminate one another. And by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we can indeed come to a full understanding of your revelation to us. Now, Father, we pray that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit who indwells each of us, that we might understand the things of your word and see how they apply to our lives. We pray that you'd guide and direct our thinking as we fellowship around your word tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 3, verse 13. James 3:13. And we continue our study of the second section of James, which has to do with the theme of being slow to speak. Now, this does not refer to speaking slowly refers to being slow to speak, in other words, exercising that arena of the fruit of the Spirit called self-mastery or self-control in the area of speech, avoiding sins of the tongue. That has been clearly covered in verses 1 down through 12, and we talked about that, and then verses 13 through 18, where we now find ourselves, or in a hinge section, a transition section, moving from the subject of slow to speak to the subject of slow to anger, that is, mental attitude sins, exercising self-control in the arena of of, uh, mental attitude sins. And here in verse 13, which we covered last time, James asked the perceptive question, who among you is wise and understanding? And his point is to get his readers to do a little self-analysis to see how far along the road to spiritual maturity they are. And it's amazing how many people do not realize that that is what they are to be about in the spiritual life. That when you first believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, at that instant you are born again. The word that the Bible uses, it's a technical theological term, is regeneration. Born again. What it means to be born again is that at the moment of birth you are born physically alive and you have a human body and a human soul. But you lack a human spirit, which is that immaterial part of man, which enables you to have a relationship with God and to understand the things of God. And at regeneration, God the Holy Spirit, at the moment that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Holy Spirit 
creates and simultaneously imparts to you a human spirit. But you are at that point a spiritual infant. You do not know anything about the spiritual life other than the little bit that you have ascertained in the process of becoming a believer. We've learned a little bit about Christ. You've learned a little bit about His work on the cross. You've learned a little bit about God, but you just have a small amount of spiritual information, and your goal now is to grow from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. And in order to do that, you have to acquire a vast amount of knowledge, spiritual knowledge that is contained in the Word of God, which we refer to as Bible doctrine. Now, this is not just academic truth or what some people might call abstract theology, but all Bible doctrine starts with understanding certain aspects of theology, of course, which is the study of God. And theology is broken down into a variety of categories. You have theology proper, which talks about who God is, talks about the doctrine of the Trinity, the essence of God, doctrine of divine decrees. You have other areas of theology, such as Christology, which focuses on the person and work of Christ. You have uh, soteriology, which deals with the doctrines of salvation. Homardiology deals with the doctrines of sin. Anthropology deals with uh, the doctrines of, of man and his makeup, both immaterially and physically. You have eschatology, which deals with the doctrines of, doctrines of the last things or prophecy. So you have various categories of, of, of theology, but all theology is for a purpose, and that is because it teaches us how to think about reality. And if we do not think accurately about reality, and remember, God defines what reality is. We do not learn about reality by going out and experiencing it, and then on the basis of our limited, finite, human uh, uh, cognitive skills, figure out how to interpret that experience and then build our own understanding of reality. The reality is what it is and it is defined for us in the Word of God. So starting point is always what the Word of God says. So we have to grow and we have to mature and this comes by learning the Word of God and it never stops. This is a, an everlasting journey for us as believers because we are finite creatures. We have limited knowledge. We do not have omniscience. God is omniscient, and He has included for us not only a vast amount of information in the Scriptures, but beyond the Scriptures, once we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord, we're going to have an eternal relationship with a God who is infinite, a God who is omniscient, which means He has all knowledge. He has infinite knowledge. And so we will be spending the rest of eternity learning about God and learning all of the many things there are for us to learn. And the starting point is just now in time. And so James is focusing on the fact that to grow spiritually, you have to first of all learn doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit. And when you apply it, the result is spiritual growth. And so this is the facet that we're talking about. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? And we saw last time that there are two words that are used here in the Greek. The first is sophos, S-O-P-H-O-S, 
And this is a word that refers to a practical knowledge. It is not the, the pagan notion of the Greeks. It's not the idea of just abstract, academic, intellectual knowledge, having a lot of intellectual information. It's not the idea that we sometimes have in, in uh, our society of someone who's well-educated, someone who has the ability to, be, uh, to think about a lot of different areas or to be academically trained. But the idea in the Greek is, in Koine Greek, it's someone who is clever, someone who's skillful, someone who is experienced. And therefore, it drives us to thinking about someone who is advanced in application of the principles of God's Word. And the second word that's used here is the word epistemos. looks like this. It's the word from it's E-P-I-S-T-E-M-O-S. And we get the English word epistemology from this Greek word. Epistemology is a branch of philosophy. There are various different branches of philosophy. There's metaphysics. Metaphysics is that branch of philosophy that tries to study what the ultimate realities are. Of course, all philosophy is done apart from revelation. So uh, uh, metaphysics deals with the ultimate realities, and epistemology deals with knowledge, how we know what we know, and it's a very important field of study to understand the dynamics of, of human knowledge. So uh, when we come to the concept of epistemos here, it's, again, it's talking about skill, it's talking about applicational knowledge, it's talking about being able to take the abstract principles of God's Word and then being able to apply them in the realm of reality. Epistemos refers to somebody who's developed insight, understanding, perception, and discernment. And last time we went through various passages in Proverbs which emphasize the importance of developing wisdom and discernment in the spiritual life. So he asked the question, who among you is wise in understanding? In other words, who's advanced in their spiritual life? And he says, if you are, if you think you are, then you should demonstrate this by your behavior. Spiritual knowledge always culminates in application in terms of character and the manifestation of that character in life. And it is exemplified here by the phrase, the gentleness of wisdom. And last, not, last time, as we were concluding, we saw that, that the word for, for gentleness here is, uh, gentleness is really the best interpretation. It's a difficult concept. It's the Greek word prautes, P-R-A-U-T-E-S. And it has to do, ultimately, with the concept of humility. But it is different from a, another Greek word, tapena frasune, long Greek word, T-A-P-E-I-N-O-P-H-R-O-S-U-N-E. Tapena frasune is the standard word for humility. And that emphasizes someone who, who is not self-absorbed. In the Greek culture, someone who, was, who exemplified this category of humility did not assert his own uh, self-rights. So this is a person who is not focusing on himself or what his rights might be, but is someone who is more concerned with others than himself. Proutes 
is more the application of that attitude. So it's, it's an application concept, so sometimes it's translated gentleness, other times it's translated meekness, but it also has the idea of someone who is very much in control and has strength under control and is operating on God's plan for their life. It is used to describe Moses, who is said to be, in Numbers 12.3, the man Moses was very humble, more than any man on the face of the earth. And this is to be one of the basic character qualities to uh, characterize a believer. Ephesians 4.2 says, with all humility and gentleness, and there you have both words used together, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Colossians 3.12 says, And so, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, tapana forsune, gentleness, prautes, and patience. So the idea here that underlies this is a person who is grace-oriented. They understand their place in the role and plan of God that God has saved them on the basis of who and what He is, and it's not on the basis of who and what we are. And so it moves from grace orientation and also emphasizes the fact that this is somebody who, in their thinking, is oriented to the plan of God and is moving forward in their life with the application of doctrine. So we are to... If you are spiritually mature, or think you are, you should be advancing, and this should be demonstrated in your life through your behavior and through your character. Now, there is a contrast here. Now, if you look at these verses, and I want to read down through the end of the chapter, down through verse 18, to show you the contrast that James is developing here. You see, many times the way we learn things is by contrasting one thing with another. So often if you, and I've discovered this in the pastorate, that there are many times that you can sit up and tell people that, that a certain thing is a certain way. And they, they have a, a superficial understanding of that. But I've seen people go out, in fact, in one of the first churches where I was pastoring, I remember that I didn't want to use any names. I've since gotten over that. I was talking about a particular minister who was very popular on television and who was teaching and communicating some false doctrine. And uh, I knew there were a few people in the congregation, some older people in the congregation, who spent their Sunday mornings listening to this individual. And so I just outlined some of his basic heretical views Nobody got the point until I started making it real clear by naming a few names. So you have to sometimes really juxtapose black and white because the areas of gray tend to be a little shaded and sometimes people just don't really see it too clearly until you juxtapose it with, with its opposite. So let's read through this and we'll see how James contrasts... Uh, True wisdom, which is derived from the Word of God, 
and should characterize a believer's life with human viewpoint wisdom. So we'll look at James 3.14, read from 3.14 down through 3.18. The contrast now is between human viewpoint wisdom, which is really foolishness in the Scriptures, and divine viewpoint wisdom. 14, 15, and 16 describe human viewpoint wisdom and its results. And 17 and 18 describe divine viewpoint wisdom and its results. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Very strong terminology. Literally, the word there for natural is soulish. Same word used over in 1 Corinthians 2.12 for the natural man, lacking a spiritual dimension. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay, now as you can tell, there's a tremendous amount for us to understand in these particular verses. Verses 14 through 16 are going to characterize human viewpoint wisdom. So the contrast is between human viewpoint thinking and divine viewpoint thinking. And the way Scripture presents it, human viewpoint thinking is always called foolishness. Now, someone can have a high IQ, and they can have five or six academic degrees, and they can have all kinds of training, and the bottom line is that the Bible says that they are foolish. For example, a person can have several degrees in science and be an evolutionist, and according to Romans chapter 1, we're told that if they worship the creature rather than the Creator, they, have, they, they are foolish. Professing to be wise, they have become fools. In contrast, you have divine viewpoint, which emphasizes true wisdom. And the biblical concept of wisdom, as we studied it last time, comes from the Hebrew concept of chokmah, which always means skillful application of of knowledge, skillful application. So it's not just academic knowledge. This is the contrast, and James is going to help us to see the difference, give us that criterion, because each one is going to produce certain characteristics, certain character qualities, and is going to work itself out in certain types of behavior. So, verse 14 begins with a contrast. The Greek looks like this. You have your first word, and then the second word is really your conjunction here of contrast, death. And so, this is going to contrast, tell us right away, that we're going to have a contrast between the person who is wise and understanding, the spiritually mature, the spiritually advancing believer, and the person operating on 
a human viewpoint, wisdom, and their sin nature. So we have a contrast here, but if. And as I've said many times, the Greek is much more precise in some ways than English is. And so we have uh, four different ways in Greek to express an if clause. If is called a hypothetical clause or a conditional clause. And this is what's called a first class condition. If and it's assumed to be true. So the, in the uh, Protestants, which is the first part, we're assuming this to be true in order to arrive at the conclusion. But if, and we assume it's true, that you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. So if you have that, and we'll assume that you do, then you do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. Now there's a lot here, and it's going to take us a while to work through the proper exegesis of this verse. A couple of points. We have to realize what is meant by heart here. Sometimes you hear people talk about, well, I just didn't think that was true. It just didn't feel right in my heart. Or you just have to listen to your heart. And there's a lot of people who use what I call fuzzy heart theology. Then there's also another category of Christians that say, well, you know, you're just too academic but you have to realize there's a difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. And I've often wondered what exactly heart knowledge is. Because the Bible doesn't utilize that kind of phraseology. You believe with your mind. The Bible uses the term heart to refer to that which is at the very core of your thinking. And as we have seen before, that there are two words that are used to describe our thinking. One is the Greek word nous, N-O-U-S, which means our mind. And the other is this word cardia, where we get, for example, a a cardiologist is a heart surgeon, cardia, K-A-R-D-I-A. And that refers to that very center, core, of our thinking, the most deeply held convictions in the mentality of our soul. Now, as a believer in your cardia, you have two categories of knowledge stored in the innermost part of your thinking. One is divine viewpoint, and the other is human viewpoint. And when you are out of fellowship, and you are operating on your sin nature, you're going to operate on human viewpoint thinking. Only when you have uh, used your grace recovery procedure to confess your sins. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse or purify us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, we immediately recover the filling of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand, recall, and utilize doctrine. And so then we we return to utilizing the divine viewpoint or Bible doctrine that is stored in the thinking of our soul. So we need, when we read the word heart, we can translate it the core thinking in our soul and we'll get the better idea. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition dominating the core thinking of your soul, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. 
Now, one of the things that we see here as we make our way down is that that James uses a very interesting word down in verse 16. We have to kind of take these verses together. He's going to end up by saying, notice in verse 14, says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Those two Greek words are repeated again in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And James uses a very different word for... um, evil when it comes down to that particular verse. He uses the Greek word here is phalos. Looks like this. P-H-A-U-L-O-S. Now normally in Greek you expect to find a couple of other words other than phalos. But this word is it's interesting. I did some work on this today, and I went back and looked at its use in classical Greek. And in classical Greek, it means something that is easy, slight, simple, ordinary. And then it came to be used to, to indicate something that was mean, bad, trivial, or common. Now, that doesn't seem to really fit the context here in James, but that's because that's classical Greek. And always remember that classical Greek is illuminating at times, but classical Greek was spoken five centuries before the time of Christ. So by by then, the word meanings has shifted, just like when you read your King James Version. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about charity. Now, charity was a common word for love at the time the King James Version was translated, and about 1611. But it is not a word that we think of or associate with love today. We have a different connotation for charity today. So the same thing is true when you look at Greek. The classical Greek sometimes is not very illuminating. But the word began to see a shift even in classical usage where it was related to moral evil. But it came to indicate something that was worthless or contemptible. It's a very practical type of word. It's not talking about evil in its inherent sense of moral evil. It's not talking about evil in terms of systems of evil. It characterizes evil as something that basically doesn't work. It characterizes evil as something that is invaluable, something that is good for nothing and is ultimately destructive. So James, in keeping with the whole theme of this epistle, chooses a word for evil that focuses on its natural outworking. That evil never produces what you think it will produce. And so what James is saying here is if you're operating on a human viewpoint concept of of life, it's going to end up producing something that uh, is trivial something that's good for nothing and is ultimately destructive. It has the idea of something that is unstable, and this reminds us of what James says back in verse 6 of chapter 1, that if you're praying to God to handle for wisdom in handling trials, you're to ask by means of faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. 
For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, he's unstable in all of his ways. The person who is not operating on divine viewpoint, on the basis of faith, is unstable. And this means that what he does has no value and is ultimately destructive. And so the term phallos also includes this idea of uh, instability and destructiveness. So it's interesting how James uses these words. Okay, let's get back here and look and see uh, where we're going. If, and you do, and we're going to assume you do, you have bitter jealousy. And here we have the combination of two words. The first is zelon, the accusative of zelos, Z-E-L-O-S, which is the standard word for jealousy, and it's modified by pikros, P-I-K-R-O-S, which is the standard word for bitterness. Now, nothing. If you want to really mess up your life, if you want a formula for how to make yourself miserable, how to destroy your family relationships, how to destroy your life in whole, then you just start being bitter. Nothing is more destructive in life than a person who gives themselves over to mental attitude sins of bitterness and jealousy. And the terms are related. Remember, the context of James is facing trials. And so often, when we face trials... We see certain adversity that comes into life and instead of responding through the application of doctrine, what we do is we try to handle it ourselves and, in, and we react in terms of mental attitude sins and in terms of emotional sins. We try to handle the situation by getting mad. And then what happens is we're disappointed because certain things have happened a certain way. We don't get what we want. Life doesn't deal with us the way we think it should. We don't get a, a, a certain job. We don't get advancement. We don't get recognition. We get jilted by someone who we think should be in love with us. We have marital problems. Your children grow up and they turn out differently than what you expect. And you can't understand that. So life hands you something completely different from what you expect and you react with resentment and bitterness. And then often it is associated with the idea of jealousy which focuses on something that you think you should have or that somebody else has and that you have have a loss of that so you uh, focus on what others have that you think that you have a particular right to. So if you have bitter jealousy, and then the second term here is the term selfish ambition. And this too is a very interesting word in the Greek. Looks like this, E-R-I-T-H-E-I-A. And is listed in almost every list of sins of the flesh in the Scriptures. It relates to a feeling or an attitude of hostility or opposition. It emphasizes a self 
self-centered or self-absorbed individual. Someone who focuses on what they don't have and what somebody else has. It, it is exhibited in an attitude of resentment based upon jealousy and it implies the connotation of rivalry. So, Eretheia is more than simple selfish ambition. It's jealousy, it's rivalry, it's resentment. It is what we would describe as inordinate ambition and competition. And it's based on arrogance, self-absorption, and ultimately the pursuit of something for merely personal gain. It is related in terms of its root to another Greek word, eris, E-R-I-S, which is a word that's translated, for example, in Galatians 5.20. We have the works of the sin nature. It's described as dissensions. So you see that it's uh, this whole word group emphasizes uh, disputation, argument, self-centeredness, personal ambition, and all of the division and divisiveness that comes from that. So James says, if you have, if you're going to let bitter jealousy and selfish ambition or rivalry or resentment dominate your, the mentality of the soul, if this is how you find yourself, if this has happened, then he's going to give a mandate to avoid it. Do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. In other words, you're going to have to recognize this. But before we go any further, we need to stop and take a look at what the Bible teaches about the entire concept of bitterness. So we'll start with three points on the doctrine of bitterness before we go look at a couple of other passages. The doctrine of bitterness. Definition. The Greek noun is pikria, P-I-K-R-I-A. And it refers to the results from grief, results from disappointment, disillusion with circumstances, people, or events. When, When life goes completely different from the way you really think it ought to be. And we all have certain ideas. We think people ought to respond to us a certain way. We thought jobs, career... We should live in a certain kind of house, have a certain kind of income. Our kids should respond to us a different way, a certain way. Our spouses should respond to us a, different, a certain way. We, we think that life ought to go a certain way, and it goes just the opposite. We get laid off from work. Uh, we lose our house. A spouse leaves us, whatever it might be. The result is that we uh, focus on the circumstance rather than on God, and we develop a disillusion with the circumstances, people, or events. As a result of that, we focus more and more on self. So we become self-absorbed, which is the first key to arrogance. It's the first of the arrogant skills. There's three arrogant skills. It starts with self-absorption. Then as we become more and more absorbed with self, moves to self-deception. Now we, be, we begin to distort reality because now we are the center of our reality. 
And then that leads to self-justification. And this develops a cycle that feeds on itself and cycles back on itself. Self-absorption, self-deception, self-justification. The more we do it, the more we become each of those three. So as we become more and more self-absorbed about the disappointments in life, we begin to resent these things. We begin to focus that resentment not only towards people who we begin to blame for that. We justify our blame. It's not really our fault. See, we've deceived ourselves. It's not our fault. We're not a problem. We're not part of the problem. We haven't failed. And we begin to justify our attitudes and our thinking, and we begin to blame others and put the blame on them for why, for all the pain and suffering in our life. And we become more and more resentful towards people and resentment, resentment are resentful toward God. We then have jealousy as we focus on others who go, are having better circumstances in life. They have more things, they have more money, they have better health, whatever it might be. And then the result of that as we focus more and more on how other people have everything, it begins to build within us an anger. So you see how one mental attitude sin ignites another mental attitude sin, and we get into what is called chain sinning. Just like a chain smoker will light one cigarette off of another and just keep, keep going, you, you light one sin off of another. You have self-absorption, self-deception, all the sins of arrogance. That builds resentment and that builds anger. And now your soul is being dominated by destructive mental attitude sins. You become angry with other people, angry towards God. It develops into greater animosity and hostility towards others. And all of this builds into excessive bitterness. And you become miserable with life, but you think everything is it's all somebody else's fault. And then you direct that towards God. So that's our definition for bitterness. Point number two. Bitterness is a mental attitude sin produced from the sin nature and has its source in arrogance and self-absorption. Now here's our diagram of the sin nature. The sin nature has two opposite poles. In this area, the area of weakness, this is the area where we are prone to yielding to temptation, we produce personal sins. Personal sins in terms of three categories. Overt sins like murder, adultery, fornication. These are personal sins. Uh, overt sins are there's, uh, sins of the tongue and mental attitude sins. Then the opposite area, the area of strength, we produce human good. And human good is that area where we are producing good deeds, morality, but it's from the, not based on the power of God, but it's based upon our own, our own strength. And then it's all motivated by various lust patterns, sex lust, money lust, materialism lust, approbation lust, power lust, chemical lust. Uh, inordinate competition, I mean, inordinate ambition producing inordinate competition. And this lust motivates us in one of two directions, trends towards asceticism 
or a trend towards antinomianism and licentiousness. And everybody's different, and everybody's sin nature is different, and so people have different strengths, different weaknesses, and the things that bother you may not bother somebody over on this side of the church, and so you see them committing some sin, and you decide that you're going to judge them. Well, how can they do that? And uh, then they see you do something, and they want to know how you can do it. So we all have our various areas in which we are prone to sin, and we have to learn not to judge other people because we all have our problems. And uh, what we're dealing with here is the mental attitude sins produced by the sin nature in the arena of bitterness. And this begins to dominate more and more, and we begin to go into uh, a situation where we blame God and others. Now, one of the passages that is very typical for people to turn to in this is found in Hebrews chapter 12. So let's turn in our Bibles over just a few pages to the left to the 12th chapter of Hebrews. Now, we've seen the definition of bitterness. Point number two, the bitterness is mental attitude sin produced from the sin nature, has its source in arrogance and self-absorption. And then point three... Bitterness is often related to self-justification and self-deception. It is the opposite of humility and meekness. Those are the two opposites. Keep that in mind because in that contrast it will help you understand the nature of bitterness. And then we have a classic example in Hebrews chapter 12. So let's get the context of Hebrews chapter 12. Remember, in the epistle to the Hebrews, the writer is addressing primarily a Jewish audience. James, I want you to notice the parallels. James is addressing a primarily Jewish audience. The writer to the Hebrews is addressing a Jewish audience that is primarily priests who are going through various tests and adversities, primarily pressure from the Jewish community because they have become Christians and they're ready to throw away their Christianity and go back to the old Judaistic sacrificial system of the Mosaic Law. And so the writer to Hebrews is warning them, and there are several warning passages in Hebrews, warning them that if they go back into the old ways, then they will forfeit the blessings that they have as believers, not lose their salvation, but they will forfeit what they have gained spiritually in terms of spiritual growth, and they will also forfeit eternal rewards and eternal inheritance. And in order to encourage the readers, the writer has come to chapter 11, where he focuses on numerous Old Testament heroes and how they advance to spiritual maturity through learning doctrine and applying it in their lives. And that is why Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the Hall of Faith chapter in the Scriptures, because there's one believer after another from the Old Testament is described, and their, their trust in the Lord and their trust in doctrine is described. Then, we come to a conclusion in 12.1. Therefore, because of all these Old Testament witnesses, that's his argument, we need to learn from the example of these Old Testament witnesses and these Old Testament heroes. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also, just as they laid aside the things that held them back, we need to lay aside the things that hold us back from spiritual advancement. I'm reading in Hebrews 12.1. Let us lay aside every encumbrance 
and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And the word translated endurance here is a word that looks like this in the Greek, hupo mones, H-U-P-O-M-O-N-E-S. Now, that should be familiar to you, because that is one of the key words in James. James says at the beginning of the epistle in chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Hupomenes, produces endurance, persistence, hanging in there, applying doctrine when it's, the life is going rough, when you're in the midst of adversity and the furnace of pressure, you are going to continue to apply doctrine consistently because you know that that is the way to advance. And that's the same thing the writer to the Hebrews is saying. That we have to lay aside the sin which holds us back from advancing spiritually so that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. So he uses that same metaphor that Paul uses, that the spiritual life is like a, like a race. He uses that athletic metaphor, that we're all in the race. The issue is, here is not believer versus unbeliever. The issue is, you are a believer, you're in the race, are you going to run the race with endurance so that you receive the prize, or are you going to fade out, not endure, fall, fall out of the race, so that you do not claim the prize. And the prize is our inheritance. The prize is our reward. The prize is what comes from reaching spiritual maturity. So the exhortation here, the, the command is to run with endurance this race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes. This is occupation with Christ. Fixing our eyes on Jesus who is the pioneer and the completer of faith. Because remember, it was Jesus Christ when He came to the earth in hypostatic union. That refers to the fact that Jesus Christ was undiminished deity and true humanity, united together in one person forever. And during the time that He was on the earth, that is the messianic dispensation. And during that messianic dispensation, Jesus Christ was fulfilling all... Old Testament law, but he was also setting the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. And so Jesus Christ handled all of the temptation, all of the testing. Remember Hebrews, back in Hebrews 3 it says, Jesus learned obedience by the things He suffered. Not that He was disobedience, but in the humanity of Jesus Christ, He went through all categories of suffering so that He could apply doctrine and He was pioneering for us, setting the precedent for the unique spiritual life of the church age, which was based upon the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus Christ was filled with the Spirit, and He was demonstrating for church age believers how to advance to spiritual maturity on the dynamics of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we are to put our focus on Jesus Christ, who is the pioneer and the completer of faith, who for the joy set before Him... See, this is personal sense of eternal destiny. He was focusing on where He was going because of the joy that was set before Him, because He knew that ultimately and finally He would have victory over death, 
He would be raised from the dead. He would ascend into heaven where He would be seated at the right hand of God the Father forever. Because of that joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. He was able to undergo incredible adversity. Now, the adversity that Jesus Christ went through on the cross far surpasses the worst adversity that you and I can ever imagine. Jesus Christ knew no sin. He was absolute perfection, yet for three hours on the cross, from 12 noon till 3 p.m., all the sins of humanity were poured out upon Him. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And so what He endured on the cross for those three hours goes far beyond the most horrible, difficult, unimaginable torture, pressure, adversity that we can come up with. We can never comprehend how horrible it was for the second person of the Trinity to be judicially separated from God the Father for those three hours on the cross when He cried out, screamed out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? He was judicially separated from God the Father because He was bearing the sins of humanity. And because of the joy, the ultimate goal of His position at the right hand of God the Father for eternity, because of that and the joy of our salvation, He endured the cross, He despised the the shame, and now He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So that's the standard given in Hebrews 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 down through 11, we are told how this plays out in terms of our spiritual life and adversity. We are to consider Him. That means we are to focus on what He went through. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You haven't struggled. You have not yet resisted. And the word there is agonizomai, which means to agonize, to struggle, to fight. You have not uh, resisted to the point of shedding blood in your struggle, in your agony against sin. See, Jesus Christ went through incredible agony on the cross, and we haven't even approached that in our struggle with testing in our life. And so the point of the writer to the Hebrews wants us to understand is focus on Christ when He went through such unimaginable agony on the cross And we haven't gone through anything like that. And yet if He endured that by relying on God the Holy Spirit, we can endure anything in this life by relying upon God the Holy Spirit. It was God the Holy Spirit who uh, gave Jesus Christ and enabled Jesus Christ to endure the suffering on the cross. And in such, it shows to us that we can endure anything in our life, any kind of suffering no matter what it might be, because we have the same source of spiritual strength. There's nothing in your life, I don't care what it is, I don't care how horrible it is, I don't care how miserable and painful it makes you feel right now, it's nothing compared to what Jesus Christ went through on the cross when He paid the penalty for your sins. And He could have gotten down off of that cross at any moment. He could have just stepped off the cross and walked away. But He stayed there, And He took that punishment in His body on the cross. He paid that penalty. He endured all of that suffering because of what was set before Him, because of the goal. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying the same thing for us. We have to focus on our eternal destiny 
And that is what is going to motivate us. We look back to the cross, what Jesus endured, and we look forward to our eternal destiny. And this is what is going to give us the motivation and the strength under the filling of the Holy Spirit to endure whatever testing we go through. And sometimes that involves divine punishment for sin. Now, we have the concept of divine discipline. Now, divine discipline includes two categories. Suffering for blessing, and then suffering for punishment. Suffering for blessing is the idea of going through various adversity because in that we are going to get the opportunity to apply the Word of God to our test. And as we apply the Word of God, we're going to see, as Romans says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that the will of God is good and perfect. And then our faith is going to be strengthened, our soul is going to be strengthened, and it's going to be a visible testimony to the angels and to those around us. But then when we sin... When we react to the suffering and we try to handle it through human viewpoint reasoning, through mental attitude sins, through human good, whatever it might be, we're going to end up in sin and we have to recover. But always there is going to be divine discipline. The writer of the Hebrews reminds his readers of Proverbs 3:11 and following, "My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord." nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He whips or scourges every son whom He receives. So here He reminds us that there is divine discipline and He uses three different Greek words, elenko, which is translated to reprove, Paiduo, which means to discipline, and mastigao, which is translated to scourge, to emphasize three different stages in divine discipline. There's warning discipline. When we first get out of fellowship, God's going to do something to catch our attention. And then there is intensive discipline. When life really gets miserable in order to try to get us to uh, confess our sins and recover and get back with uh, the plan of God... And then there, if we fail to do that and we continue in carnality, then there is dying discipline, which is the sin unto death. So there is this warning to the, these, Hebrew, the, these Hebrews, these Jews, that if they bail out of Christianity, God will discipline them and they may even die the sin unto death if they fail to stick it out. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. This is suffering for blessing. We endure in order to advance spiritually. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, But He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. So the purpose here is to advance spiritually in sanctification. What the Bible calls holiness, which is building into our lives the integrity of God through spiritual growth. 
All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, and if any of you have gone through serious divine discipline, you can relate to that. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, but to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now that reminds us of what we've studied in the past, which is the concept of production righteousness, that the goal of the spiritual life is to produce righteousness. But listen. In our passage in James, don't turn back there, let me just remind you of where James is going in James 3.18. He says, The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The writer to the Hebrews says that afterward discipline yields the what? Peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see how these concepts, chapter 3 and chapter 12, fit together. They complement each other. There is much in James that develops the themes in Hebrews 12. And then we come to verses 12 and 13, which is a very figurative and metaphorical way of talking about grace recovery. He's just talked to the readers about discipline for their carnality, and then he says, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And the picture here is that when we are in carnality, We are impotent spiritually, we are weak, we are feeble, we are not following a straight path, we are following a crooked path, but when we confess our sins, then God is the one who strengthens us and our paths are made straight. Now, verse 14 gives us the mandate, pursue peace with all men. That same concept is covered in James 3 and we'll come back to that later. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, that is, the spiritual growth, without which no one will see the Lord. This is not talking about salvation. This is talking about a level of intimacy in our relationship with the Lord in heaven to those who are winners in the spiritual life. Verse 15, the warning. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And this is done by failing to appreciate the grace of God, retreating from God's grace in the spiritual life, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now, so far, all we've done is cover the context and help us to understand uh, the setting here, the warning. They are about to fall short of the grace of God. By coming short of the grace of God, he means reverting to idolatry, reverting to religion. Religion is man by man's efforts trying to gain the approval of God. When we fall short, come short of the grace of God, it's when we're substituting religion for grace. Those are the only two options. You're either grace-oriented, relying upon the grace of God, which is exemplified in salvation, or you're trying to solve things yourself. And the warning is, no root of bitterness. Now this is one of those passages that is often psychologized. I remember hearing Bill Gothard years ago go to this and talk about uh, root of bitterness as some psychological mechanism that comes in and, and destroys your life. Well, that's not what this is talking about. Well, we're out of time, so if you want to know what a root of bitterness is, then you're going to have to be here next Wednesday night. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word and to be encouraged by the fact that we are 
to keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, to be occupied with Him, to realize that He has pioneered our spiritual life and the suffering, the testing that He endured during His life on the earth far uh, surpasses any suffering or difficulty we encounter. And He handled all of that adversity under the power of God the Holy Spirit. So in the same way, through the enabling power of God the Holy Spirit, and the doctrine of your word, we are enabled to handle any situation in our life, and we are to avoid yielding to the temptation of the sin nature to give in to uh, attempts to solve that problem through mental attitude sins, through emotional sins, and through various other categories of sin, because all that does is to fragment the soul, and it creates even greater trauma in our lives. So, Father, we pray that you would encourage us by the things that we have studied to keep our focus on Jesus Christ as the pioneer and completer of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.